This is KYW News Radio in depth. I'm Matt Leon. So, what have we learned from the COVID 19 pandemic, and how could these lessons help us be more prepared for the next public health crisis? Wanted to talk more about this, so caught up with Dr. Stephanie Zaza. She is the president of the American College of Preventive Medicine. Interesting conversation. Give a listen. So I'd like to start just to get kind of of your thoughts more than a year into this COVID-19 pandemic. How confident are you that light is indeed at the end of the tunnel? Because things do seem to be trending in a very positive direction. I couldn't agree more. You know, a couple of months ago when the first vaccine started to roll out, I, I texted a friend of mine at CDC and I said, I hope things are, I hope you can see the end, the light at the end of the tunnel because it feels that way to me. Not just from what I was seeing here, but tone of things in the media seemed to shift a little bit and it seems to continue going in that direction, which is a really good sign. We continue to make vaccine and deliver vaccine. We're starting to see states change their mask and distancing requirements. So I think everybody feels this optimism and I feel it too. I think that vaccine is, it's an incredibly important prevention tool. And to have this choice among vaccines and to have plenty of it, you know, obviously we still have access issues and things to sort out, but I think we're, I think we're on the right path. So overall, when we look at the, before we talk about preventing the next pandemic, when you look at the overall response over the last year or so, how would you assess the U.S. response to the COVID-19 pandemic, kind of in full? I think overall, we're on on the right trajectory now. I would say early on, I would have not given us such a high mark. But, you know, we've learned a lot and and to our credit, learned from the mistakes and made some important switches and pivots to, to the right actions that I think that were getting us in the right place. There was a fair bit of damage done in terms of people's confidence in the messaging that was coming out that has a a pretty long lingering effect and some sense of, you know, can we do this better the next time? So I I do think that overall, you know, I think we've done a good job, but that said, we've learned a lot of lessons along the way that we've had to to make adjustments to and, and some things we just missed. And so thankfully we're in a place now where we have the, really the, decisive prevention tool in the vaccine that can really move us forward if we can get people to take it. So I think that's going to be our next big hurdle is getting really high rates of vaccination. And we have we have to focus on that right now. You mentioned lessons. What are some of the biggest lessons you think we've learned during this pandemic? Many, many. Um, I think the starting off one big lesson is international cooperation in identifying and trying to respond quickly and effectively when a new agent, a new virus, a new bacteria is discovered, we really stumbled there. I think we in the United States need to look really hard at our regulatory processes for tests and therapeutics, therapeutic medications, so drugs that treat disease and also prevention medications like vaccines so that we have a, a really robust process. I think a lot of that did get worked out, but it took a while. The biggest most important lesson we've learned as a nation, as a public, is that people who are already vulnerable because of poor health, because of poor housing, because of other conditions of their environment, never do better when there's a crisis. 
we all have to, and this is something we can all work on. So at the individual level, families, communities, and at sort of every level of government, we need to work on changing our underlying good health. We need to be healthier and we need to reduce these disparities. Some populations are just so at risk and we saw that play out in a very unfortunate way. When we're looking ahead, people were telling us, I can't tell you how many documentaries I watched over the last 15 years, that the next pandemic's coming, it's coming. And you'd watch it and you'd get freaked out for the final 15 minutes of the show, but then you'd forget about it. Knowing that we've all kind of lived through this now, what are the biggest things we can do to help mitigate whenever the next pandemic comes down the, comes down the pike? That's such a, a great observation. You know, we have short memories when it comes to some of the stuff we're seeing that right now. We're seeing people like, oh, you know, it doesn't seem so bad. I'm not going to worry about the vaccine, right? People are already starting to move into that place of like, we can get through this. So we do have to, without frightening people, we have to find ways to keep the pressure on government at each level, so city governments, state governments, federal governments, to do that kind of planning, to take the lessons and translate those into different ways of, of acting in the future. And that's that can be very hard to do. Funding is required for that. So keeping sustainable funding, the, the dangerous thing that sometimes happens is sort of surge funding, and then it backs way off and th- other things become priorities. So Keeping this as a priority is going to be really important. And, and I think perhaps one way to help people keep it as a priority is to help people see these connections between all of these difficult things that happened. The connection between our health, our ability to respond, and from a health perspective, tied very tightly to an economic and social perspective. And if we can, and tying it also to some of these social justice movements that have arisen throughout this so that these helping people see how these things are always interconnected like this is a really is one way maybe we can help keep this as a priority and that's something we as preventive medicine and and public health physicians try to do all the time but we often operate in the background so another way is to sort of keep public health out in front of some of these conversations because this is this is what we talk about all the time Um, And that could help keep it as a priority as well. And this kind of, and I've had this conversation with many people. One of the vexing things about the idea of public health is the better job you do, the less people think it's necessary because you can't prove a negative. Like you can't prove that your neighbor would have gotten polio had there not been preventative health. What can we do to, and you mentioned that surge funding and then it backs away. Is it, you know, you can keep pressure on, but are there kind of outside the box ways we can work to maintain the, the attention and keep the focus so that people, this doesn't fade away quickly? Yeah, I, I think it's, yes. I think there are ways to think about this as not just a governmental function, but a community function. And you can take community at any level and, and try to demonstrate how changing business cards in the middle of the firefight isn't going to work, right? So building the relationships between government and the private sector and the nonprofit sector, for example, in communities, doing some of that preparedness work can can generate a a lot of -of out-of-the-box thinking that's very specific to any given community. Because one community is not like any other. And so you that sort of localized kind of thinking has to happen. Um, and I think that can happen and magnify itself as you move up in levels of 
governmental jurisdiction. So you can do it at county or city levels. You can do it at the state or the federal level. We need to do more of that. And that, that does require people coming in to help facilitate those conversations, to help generate plans, to say, you know, you know, here's what we can do. And here, what can you provide if we needed to behave in this way? Um, there was a lot of that activity going on when I was still at the Centers for Disease Control. We were doing a lot of that kind of strategic preparedness work in communities, in consultation with a group at Harvard. And it was in really interesting to see how communities could come together in like a two or three day kind of learning environment and, and begin developing those preparedness plans. I'd be very curious to go back and see of the communities that we did work with, how did they fare in this situation this last year? Were, were they doing some things that maybe other communities might want to try to emulate? We've talked about the vaccine rollout and, and vaccines. You know, now we're hearing, you know, talks. And I think this is kind of something people have talked about, the idea that it might be a booster shot a year down the road or two years or, or whatnot. <laughs> Are we going to be living with COVID-19, even if it's at, levels of seasonal flu for the foreseeable future like in the short term here we're not really going to eradicate it like polio was eradicated is, is it going to kind of be hanging around but it's just going to be uh like like a flu just something you're aware of you get your booster and you go about your day yeah if, if we if we stopped vaccinating for a lot of the things we vaccinate for we we would see huge outbreaks of and we do see measles and chickenpox and all kinds of things. So if we stopped vaccinating for COVID, we would see the same kind of thing where it would pop up in communities, there'd be an outbreak, you would have to do all this stuff to to stop it and try and prevent it from getting out of that community. So I do think we're in this for a little bit of the long haul with this particular vaccine. I suspect it will become sort of a routine part of one's healthcare. How frequently that might need to happen is yet to be determined. That's, I mean, we can't know that yet. So part of the ongoing research into vaccines is to look at how long immunity from vaccine lasts so that you can then decide if there's booster needed every so many years or, or not. But until we get to a point where vaccine rates are very high and community transmission rates are very low, we won't be out of this situation. It might not be a pandemic anymore, but we'll still see cases and hospitalizations and deaths. There will be a tail for sure. I know, see, I know all kinds of public health kind of game out situations, you know, mm -hmm. it drills and preparedness. If you were gaming out COVID-19, was there anything that has actually happened that never would have been considered in the, the things you threw into the pot when you were trying to figure out how a pandemic might attack this country? You know, have there been any wild cards that really were not things that you would have considered actually being a legitimate possibility that actually happened? To be perfectly honest, the wild card I just didn't see coming was the amount of chaotic communication from the top levels of government. And that found its way through every level. And then that generated a substantial amount of distrust between public health scientists and public health agencies and jurisdictional leadership. I had been working in an era where that was actually improving over time. And then when I retired and, and you know, I was away from this for a couple of years, away from governmental public health, and then this happened, I just was surprised by the amount of heat without light 
in the in the public discourse and the the amount of attempts to set policy through opinion pieces instead of through formal decision-making processes among the organizations that had, you know, all whatever information was coming in, you know, and, and sort of concentrating that information to a place where good decisions could be made. So to me, that was a shocking change in the way I had been trained and then had experienced working on responses to other outbreaks and other pandemics. I worked on the 2009 flu pandemic, and I just didn't experience this the same way. So that was a, a really big change. And, and the truth is, we do know how to do a good job on risk communication. It's not easy, but there are ways to train to do that. It, it Again, it takes will. It takes time to figure out how to do that. You have to have a lot of trust between the various people that want to be out front talking about this. So to me, that that was a, a huge disappointment. It was a lesson learned that you can never take for granted that any one person will know how to get up and do this. So I do think that that's a piece that we need to look at very hard. We talked about the funding and consistency there. One of the things that's interesting, kind of going along with looking forward, I've talked to the deans through doing interviews for various podcasts of multiple public health schools and public health uh, programs. And they have talked about how over the last year, just in the midst of everything, they've actually had a surge of people applying. Like there's this <laughs> wave of people that want to help, that want to be a part to make sure that the next pandemic can be mitigated. How big is that? I mean, it's obviously funding's a huge part, but how big is having a next generation of people with their eye on this prize? It's, I will tell you, for me, it's thrilling. There's nothing better than when you're a senior person at an agency like CDC and these young people come in and they're so full of energy and they want to learn and they want to contribute and they want to do stuff. And it's how we all start in this field. And it's, it's so invigorating and exhilarating, really, to see how much interest there is in public health. So I would encourage anybody. I mean, it's a great field. You, you know, in my own career, I worked on an, a huge range of topics in health. And I think that for preventive medicine and, and public health physicians and public health professionals at large, it, the range of things you can work on and the kind of work you can do is just, it's so satisfying. And, and I, I obviously, I still love it. But I, I think that what makes me happy about that mostly is that people care very much about their communities and about people's health. And they want to contribute to making this a, a better place to live, that they want the environment, the physical environment, the social environment, the health environment to be something that supports people and lifts them up. So I, I think it's great. And we will emerge from the pandemic, hopefully sooner rather than later. For people listening to this, and we do talk about preventing the next pandemic, and I think it can get overwhelming because a lot of it's out of your control and it's governments and it's politicians and all. Somebody listening to this, wants to know in their little slice of the world the, the steps they can take to prevent slash mitigate slash deal with whatever the next pandemic is. What do you tell them? Kind of things they can control, things they can do that will make a difference going forward. I would definitely go back to one of the first things I said, which is the healthier you are, the more resilient you are. What we saw in this pandemic was that people with very, you know, with serious or even mild underlying chronic diseases, including obesity and overweight, did worse. They had 
more severe disease and a higher death rate. And that was very much also entangled with issues of race and occupational risk. So I think that my advice to individuals is we do have a part to play and the ways that you can exert your own control over these very huge complex situations is to be as healthy as you can be and take that. That's a very serious effort often involved to establish. I think we've under underestimated or undercommunicated how important it is, it is to have an established healthcare home, a, a personal physician you trust, health advisors you trust, people you can go to to ask for information. I'd say be vaccinated against the things you can be vaccinated for. This past year, I was eligible to get a shingles vaccine, which I felt was really important for me. I didn't want to have anything else going on because I wanted to be able to be resilient if I did get infected with COVID-19. So I think it's for, for an individual, it's sort of that personal responsibility for your own health and to take care of your family and to make sure your family is as healthy as possible. The other thing we can do as individuals is to, is to really understand how our government works. And when, you know, go to school board meetings, go to, if, if you are interested in that, go to city council or, or county commissioner meetings, because they talk about these things and they talk about what are we going to do if this happens? Those meetings are all open. And understanding how your civic structure works helps you then understand when they come out and say, everybody has to wear a mask if you're outdoors. And you're like, who are you to tell me that, right? Now you have a relationship with them. They're all, I know at least here, all of our commissioners and city council members are on Facebook and you can sort of start to get to know who they are and how they make decisions. And that can be really important. So I think those are some things people can do at an individual level to, to try to help think about, you know, how do we make our communities and our families and ourselves a little bit more resilient when the next thing comes down the pike. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio in depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.